Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Okay, welcome back to the Optimum Drive podcast presented by TFL. I've got a couple of really cool episodes lined up to do right now, and I couldn't be more excited about the guest. Um, you guys probably know who I am. My name is Paul Gerard, I'm former Top Gear Stig racing driver professionally for many, many years. Too many to count, actually. Also the author of Optimum Drive, and uh, also the host of this podcast, as well as being the driver for TFL whenever they do any track stuff. So on to my guest. So this guy um, is a legend. He also happens to be a really, really close personal friend. I'm, I'm very grateful to be able to say that. Uh, I've known him for a really long time. I've watched him come up through um, just doing little ride and drive programs with me to be one of the best known people uh, in motorsports almost globally these days because he just has such a wide range of capabilities. Uh, he also does so much uh, stunt driving. You've seen him in a ton of movies, whether you realize it or not, and, uh, and has done every sort of genre of racing you could really imagine. And probably now, hearing all of that and hearing that introduction, you might have an idea, because I'm narrowing it down with all these different accolades um, from this dear, dear friend. Let me introduce you all to Tanner Faust. Tanner, how you doing? Good. That was uh, that was much longer introduction than I expected. <laughs> it was much shorter than I could have done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, uh, anytime you hear the word legend, it just instantly equals old. It's like, yes. it's like when some, yeah, it's like when somebody starts the sentence with the word, listen, you know, when they say, listen, this is what, I, what they're actually saying is. <laughs> <laughs> and so when somebody says legend, that means old and let's move past how old you are. Yes, yes. I mean, it, it. Both things are true, though. You are, you know, man. I, I remember. I remember when I first met you, and I think it was on the BMW programs back in the day, um, in, in the late '90s. And you were, you were a young, young guy then. And I, as a matter of fact, your nickname was Sprout. <laughs> yeah, I remember. Yeah, Rex. That's right. He said, uh, "Who's that little green guy that follows the Jolly Green Giant around?" That's right. Sprout. He's like. That's your name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you yeah. know, so that that kind of stuck because you were so young then. And I then I was asking around to who you were. And I, I learned this was before I'd moved to Colorado. And you were already here, of course, and um, and working at the Winter Driving School. And that's sort of how you got to know Rex and and all of that. And uh, and I, I want to go over all of this, actually, because that's the thing I think to everyone that's that's watching. Um, to me, and, and thinking of what I like to do with these podcasts, where I like to relate it back to driving, and, and you have just such a cool history. I've been lucky enough to hear a lot of it. I think for folks that are that are that know you just as Tanner Faust, racing driver, and you know, I think a lot of people wonder how people become what you are. It's not an easy thing. Not many people do it. I mean, now you're an extreme E racing for McLaren doing just kind of like this this 
for lack of a better way, is just sort of a wacky form of racing that sort of next level, next generation. You're racing against Sebastian Loeb and, you know, some of the best racing, you know, uh, Ekstrom and the list goes on and on, some of the best racing drivers in the world. And uh, and yet you had this humble start at the winter driving school. And I think that's flipping amazing. And And part of that, of course, is that really wasn't the start. And so tell us a little bit about what it was like to be even younger than Sprout, <laughs> as yeah. maybe you then maybe what were you like? You're like 20 then, not even 20. Um, as far um as the start of the start yeah, of winter driving school so. stuff, I'd already graduated college and and was okay. uh, um trying to figure out what to do. You know, I graduated with a biology degree and that was like a pre-med thing. Um it was and sorry if you can hear the snorting in the background i don't know if you can it sounds like a pig is walking around my feet it's a little french bulldog that is nicknamed the pig and that's why because she's a french <laughs> snorter every podcast um, should have a french bulldog in the there should be a yeah some snorting going on and there's a, i'm in a, i'm on a farm essentially so that's that's it's apropos but there's um so as a kid i was always into cars like i'm sure virtually anybody watching this podcast um and it was never I, I didn't though have any kind of racing connection my dad was a doctor my grandfather was a doctor everybody i knew were doctors it, it, there was no race fan in the family uh never went to a racetrack um apart from one time we lived in monterey briefly close enough to laguna Seca that we could hear it went to go see what the noise was about but um i was a, a car fan so I didn't know who'd won this championship, what the Indy 500 was, what discipline rally was, but I, I loved cars. I could pick any car out by its headlights, um, you know, as a six-year-old, which annoyed my sister to no end. Um, I, I, I was all about cars, had all the posters, you know, the quintessential white Countach on the grass, you know, and the, you know, the, a lot of the, the posters that we all had, but it um and then my dad when i was three bought a 912e which was uh this yellow porsche that was a u.s only model um one of the slowest porsches ever made probably i still have that car but uh it's you know i the bug was i was bitten by it pretty early but i didn't know anything about racing until i saw rally racing videos um you know in the 90s so there's the old Duke videos like VHS videos or DVD straight up videos. That's right. Straight up videos. Yeah. There was no YouTube in, yeah. in college. I did buy one of those. Um, I don't know if it was an infomercial or, but it was a 1990 and 1991 WRC championship uh, coverage DVD. And it was, um, you know, Colin McRae, Carlos Sainz, just cleaning house, bouncing their way through the forest. I mean, suspension is just terrible compared to, so to cars old, now. How old were you when you were looking at that? You said college just now, right? So. Yeah, college. So, well, um, so I bought that DVD in college. It was from the 90-91 season. But um, so that would have been probably 97. I graduated college in 97. Um, and when I, when I got out of school, I... I, I pretty much realized that I didn't want to be a doctor. There's, there's a terrible story about when my dad talked me out of being a doctor that I won't share, but you've probably heard it. <laughs> uh, 
Let's just say it involves, uh, he was a gynecologist. I was going to say, is this your yeah. gynecologist? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly it involves complaining about getting an ingrown toenail fixed and how a podiatrist has to work on sweaty feet. And my dad, while eating a tuna fish sandwich, just very eloquently put that his situation can be worse. Right. And yeah. And then I was like, check, please. I'm out. I'm going to find something else, I think. And um I started working for this guy, Bill Kitchen, who was an inventor in Longmont, and uh, he invented amusement rides. Um, and uh, he was um, entrepreneurial. I don't know if you ever met, if you've ever met I, somebody I like him. I met him at an event, and I remember he had two hyacinth macaws. Yeah, that's right. He had macaws. That's right. Yeah. And, 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 and I remember he had a place like in Tampa or St. Pete, or was it Orlando? He had one, I think, in Fort in um, uh, in Orlando, is where he lives. But I, I know he had a place in uh, down near Miami. But yeah, that. But this was just somebody who was an entrepreneurial guy who, who saw something that was fun, figured out how to make value out of that fun for other people, and made amusement rides out of stuff. And it just to me that was the first time somebody just like conjured. Uh, a living out of thin air you know i'd never met somebody entrepreneurial like that and i think it's contagious and i think um for me the most two fun things were skiing and driving and 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 luckily i went to driving so you mentioned skiing there for a second um, yeah and so let's let's hit the rewind button one one more time on that so when when you were really young what were you doing you you loved cars you said but how are you getting your kicks when you were a kid? What was what was sort of fun for you? Um, younger than I could drive. I mean, I was riding a little BMX. I lived in Scotland in the middle. We lived in the middle of nowhere from nine to thirteen, which were kind of those years. Okay, yeah, that were critical. And I was, you know, jumping my BMX bike around and breaking things with bb guns and and stuff and getting like all the adolescent you had a BB stuff. gun in scotland Is that yeah like... yeah we had we had barns we destroyed those barns just we shot everything but that's i mean and that's why i i that's why i don't experience road rage now see because i got oh i broke everything when i was nine so it's uh <laughs> we're good now we're <laughs> but, good okay yeah no the uh but i did uh my mom did let me drive part of our drive to school we had an old Volkswagen bus and she let me drive uh, on this part of the drive was on an estate that was kind of a hunting estate it was about eight miles of the drive to school and so that was my first time actually driving like shifting gears I mean I'd sat on a lap and steered and you know thought it was fun like any kid but um that that was the first time shifting gears and uh drove the bus we had a Ford Fiesta that was a right-hand drive drove that one and I drove them every day from 10 to 13 um, for that part of the trip to school um, and then moved back to the States and had to wait three years, watch all my siblings get their driver's licenses. Those were the longest three years ever. But I, I was addicted to the, the driving. I don't know what it what it was. I still don't know what it is. It's, a, you know, it, it, but again, anybody listening to this knows that it's there's a, it's more of an obsession than a passion almost it's it's really you get so obsessed that um it's all you can kind of think about when you wake up and, and when you go to sleep and and um never thought about making a career doing it never thought that was even a possibility didn't even know that people could do that but it 
it was something that just uh, ate at me for for years until I got my license. And, you know, I was racing RC cars up mm-hmm. until the day I got my license and everything went for sale. Um, was uh, just obsessed with anything car related and and um, but still didn't have a motorsport bug yet. Still didn't understand that there was a business of motorsport out right. there. Um, and that that didn't really happen until I got out of college and was working for the inventor, Bill. He moved to Florida. And I've told you this, I think, before, where when I flew back from Florida to Denver at one point, um, there was that racetrack next to the airport, uh, Second Creek Raceway. And I saw that racetrack there. Um, I went to it. Um, I kind of even as we were landing, which is funny because I took off from DIA in my own little plane yesterday. So now I know what runway that was, runway 25. And I, I literally saw that. Uh, I followed the roads back to the airport to see how to get there, um, got there. And I ended up getting a job with one of the race teams as a mechanic and um, just to be close to it, just to learn more about it. That's, that's fantastic. I mean, that's, it's really cool too. And I think it, I don't know, it's just so interesting how something, I mean, when we're so young, just gets sort of attached in our heads and, and, and it, like you said, an obsession. And, and you have, I mean, it, you can't even put your finger on why, you know, other than, other than you liked cars. That's what you said. It, like, you didn't even know, drive, you know, racing was like really a thing. You just thought cars were cool. And that was like, I, I'm, my son was the same way. He could, he could pick out any car with the badge, you know, like I taught him that one. And he just, he just latched onto that. And he learned all that so quickly when he was just a couple of years old. And he'd point out cars to me all the time. It's just so I don't know. It's interesting how some things are really sticky, you know, in our in our brains like that. It's almost I mean, if you, for me, I remember when I noticed driving, I remember the exact road, the exact turn, Colorado Boulevard to Hamden on uh, in the 912 going by. I think it's Wilshire Golf Course or something right there. There's kind of a sweeping second gear right. And I remember my dad kind of was, had the tires squealing around the corner one time. And that was when I, and I was sitting in these sheepskin, you know, seats in this 912. <laughs> of course. <laughs> they you know, camel leather. Did he have and string back driving gloves? <laughs> driving yeah. gloves all the time. Probably. And, you know, the Blaupunk there and like all the very Porsche thing. And it is, and I just remember thinking like, what was that? Like something happened that was kind of cool. And, and that thing had kind of a weird shifter where when it was in second gear, it was actually buried into the sheepskin, you know, because the throw was so long on those things. And and I just started seeing driving as like a superpower. You know, I'd ride with different people. They drove differently. The How they were with the clutch was different. How they took corners was different. And it was like this superpower that, you know, was skill that people had some better than others. Yeah. And I mean, I've never talked about it like this before, really thought about it like this, but I just think I grew up you know, we didn't need freedom as six-year-olds or five-year-olds. It wasn't like we were needing to, you know, adventure the globe on this ribbon of asphalt. It was, it was just this power that these people had that were allowed to drive that we didn't have. 
And, and I don't know, I, I do remember paying attention to how people drove, what their level was, you know, how, how smooth they were with stuff and whatever my whole life before getting a license. And so, yeah, it was about the, the superpower. That's what I wanted. That's really cool. I mean, that's a really interesting, I mean, that's, I think that sort of speaks volumes to you because I, I know how you are. And we're going to talk about this more and more, but but you're very detail oriented and you're very observant. Um, and that's one of the cool things. I've been lucky enough to kind of, you know, look over your shoulder and help you out in some races back in the day. And um, I've, I've always claimed you were like the best guy I ever worked with just, just from that, because of that, I'm hearing it now and not realizing it as long as I've known you, I've never heard you describe it like that. And I just think that's fascinating how how because i i as you were saying it i'm like i don't have recall of how well people drove when i was really young that that you came later you. that came you later <laughs> now now it drives me crazy like the yeah driver the, you know whatever right you're like ah. you just develop your judgmental nature later I yeah you were earlier. judgmental right from the very beginning. yeah i was judging the crap out of everybody trust that's, me that's that's i think that's <laughs> interesting because i mean I, I mean ponder that like to to people watching this to you didn't know how to drive but you were critical of people's driving <laughs> i think what an arrogant friend right? i think that's yes <laughs> you, you you said it earlier i think that's kind of fantastic <laughs> that's cool because like for me I'll, I'll i'll give you an, and there's a lot of parallels between you and i funny strangely enough like we were in similar parts of the world for similar times in our lives which yep. is just yep. completely random Yes. Um, I think, and and we do have kind of a very similar mindset. And those of you that don't know, by the way, you know, Tanner did write the the forward to my book, um, to Optimum Drive, and it was like really well written. When I read that, he was like, "What do you think?" And I'm I'm like, I'm almost in tears, like because wow, you, awesome. because you really understood what I was saying and what I was trying to say, and I just and that's why you were the perfect guy to do that, you know. So. It's, funny. it's just so funny hearing you say things that particular and kind of I'm making you kind of dig into your, you know, back in your back in the back of your brain where you haven't thought in a long time about about, you know, sort of what brought you to do what you do so well. And uh, I think that's neat. And, you know, for me, like I'll, I'll say, like, like for me, it was more like I was always imagining driving. And so I was whenever I was on my bike. And I rode bikes and raced BMX and all that stuff. And then, of course, was skiing as well. And uh, I was always imagining driving um, and, and, and relating it to that and going, is that what it feels like? You know, and, and feeling the back of my, the back tire of my bike slide and imagining it were a car, you know, like, and skidding, you know, grabbing the back brake and making it do it intentionally going, look at me, you know. And uh, say, so is all that correlation, like an association that was bouncing around in my head were you doing that as well while you were riding bikes and skiing? Um, no. <laughs> that's, well, I love it. I love that that's the answer. Yeah. I love that um, that's the answer because, again, it, this is why you're different. I, I should have not been doing that, evidently, because you're way more successful yeah. than mine. Well, no, the skiing <laughs> was, it was different because it was more emulation of my dad because he was a great skier and was Olympic hopeful in the 60s and stuff. So... I spent all my time skiing just trying to look like he looked, but the biking, um, yeah, I mean, we, we did jumps and slit and tried to slide things around and stuff, but I never, 
I never raced go-karts. I never had a feeling about of oversteer or understeer. I never put that together with, with the car factor. I think if I would have done that, I would have been, I mean, just to, I would have been into car racing earlier. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Cause I, cause I loved it on a bike and, and the bike was our only freedom in Scotland. We just yeah. went forever. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the you went away from home in Scotland on your bike. Oh, uh, well we had the, the closest town was eight miles. So we'd go there and, um, it was, it was a huff. It doesn't seem like much, a but 16 bike. miles round trip on a, yeah. yeah, basically a huffy with mag wheels and big yeah. one speed, especially on these little roads where you're getting like clipped from people going 90 miles an hour. Yeah, on these little, yeah. Oh, tiny, tiny roads. But, um, yeah, it was, it was a big day when we went to Brecon. That was the name of the town, but we never, yeah, no, I didn't make the connection to cars. I liked, tried riding on the ice and, and stuff, but yeah it, it, it that's interesting that you, you already had that experience with cars i think i was already i was already kind of associating anything i did with what i wanted to do which was i wanted to race cars um and but i think you were you were doing that just not consciously in a way you know because you it's like like think of the feeling in the 912 right that you had with your dad going around that ramp and that that's probably like you're like in a way, maybe on some level, you're like, that's that feeling I had on my bike when I railed a corner on it or on a pair of skis or, you know, or whatever that might have been. Yeah, it, that may have been that may have been a connection there. And I I just didn't know. Yeah. I just didn't know how he did it. I just didn't know how he did it. Sorry, this pig is like really complaining over there. Can you hear that? Yeah, oh, I heard it. Yeah. Oh, you can, yeah. <laughs> it's like really complaining. I mean, I yeah, she's just about to crap all over the carpet right now. The uh, <laughs> <laughs> <on> part two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got to do that as a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah, well, that'll be good. Dig the dog crap on the park carpet. We just don't know. Um, so uh, I never had the uh, I never really had the whole um, understanding of what went into driving. I didn't. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm. When I try to think about what the bite was, it it just was about how cool the cars are, the stats. I was like, you know, at the, at the you remember that time when there was always the baseball kid that knew all the stats on the baseball oh, people yeah. and teams, and then there was the football stat kid. And for me, I was the stat kid on the cars, like the top speeds and the zero to sixty of the nine forty four that could do it now slower than a minivan. But it still is like, you know, that was, can you imagine going zero to 60? Remember the 959 came out in 3.2 seconds and you're just like impossible. Yeah. And, uh, and that I, I, it was an imagination thing. It was it, there. I didn't have even the rich friend really who had this stuff, you know, that yeah. you would experience it. Cause I did meet friends like that later who always had sort of the rich friend that, they got in the car sometimes and, and they got to taste it that way. But um, it's, yeah, maybe, and maybe that's why it took so long to turn it into something. And it really was until I was out of college. And, um, you know, I tried, I took a swing at Boulder at mechanical engineering, uh, aerospace engineering, actually. And the dream job there was to be the guy holding the little smoke, you know, thing that makes the little 
years. I, you knew I was going to say the word vortice at some point here. Uh, yeah, here. It's yeah. Okay. Well, and, how far in are we? Yeah. And uh, that was the dream job. And then we went and we did this like go to work with a real life engineer kind of a, a thing. And um, these engineers had nothing to do with anything that seemed fun. They designed valves that monitored other valves and that valve controlled a bigger valve. And that was, that was it. It was, it, there was no like macro. You had to be, you were yeah. those guys in the white trench coats doing the like aeronautical stuff. They had been working for like 40 years already to get to that point. And I just got so turned off of engineering that I was really lost at that point. And that's why I fell back into biology, which uh, uh, I, I actually um, got into molecular biology because it was very similar to kind of the space orbital mechanics that we studied with aerospace engineering. Aerospace is kind of broken into space and planes. And the, you, when you start out as a freshman, you learn both. And the space is all or, orbital mechanics and gravity, which is really similar to molecular biology. Um, uh, but the plane stuff is really what I think I was interested in. It was like aeronautics and, and hydrodynamics and, fl and fluid flow, you know? Um, but I just never vortices. got to explore. Specifically vortices. <laughs> Honestly, I swear I've, I've looked at when I was working with the inventor, when you work, when you work for somebody as contagiously entrepreneurial as that, um, I would see the drain in the bathtub and I'd be like, I know there's an invention there. I know there's something amazing <laughs> having to do with that little tornado and capturing that energy somehow. <laughs> Somebody's going to do it. And, you know, every, everywhere you looked, you'd always be like, dang it, I know there's some invention that solves a problem. but Misplaced yeah. optimism. <laughs> That's part of being a man. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> that's i think I, I again i think it's so cool i would i literally love discussions about people's childhoods because again it, it frames us in some way that i don't think we ever wrap our heads around how influential it is on our entire lives how little little things little occurrences good bad and otherwise um i i remember you know you're talking about how no one with a fast car my dad happened to have a friend that worked on lamborghinis when I, when I first moved to the US, I lived for one year in Maryland in Cockeysville. I, I remember, I'm trying to remember his name. I think his last name was Schmidt. He was a German guy. I got to sit in a Lamborghini Espada when I was eight years old. You know, and it's just like, I just remember the smell. <laughs> like- That'll get the, that'll get the hook in, just that. Yeah, it, it's just, you know, that leather, that Italian leather, and you just smell, you just smell that, you look at the shape of that car, even me as an eight-year-old and I'm not very tall, I'm like going, slinking down into this thing going it's like a it's you know speaking to your aeronautical dreams it felt like an airplane or a spaceship and yeah. um, I, like i had those little little moments like that it's like you even think about seeing a car on the road like that, that you remember as a kid you know if you saw some something that rolled down the road that you didn't see every day something exotic that leaps off the pages of a of a car magazine the other thing about when you were saying it tanner but but I still remember the zero to 60 time of the Lamborghini Countach from 1975 it was 6.7 seconds to 60. Like I have those stats in my head. And I remember the Porsche Turbo in 76 doing, I think is in 6.2. And that was ridiculously fast. Well, you the know? 959, that's the 959 in 89. Real number. 
Yeah, well, that's a long time later. That was it was a three point two, but it was the lightweight version did three point two, and I think the other one did three point five. It was the back of the road and track and the car and driver. Yes. Oh, dude, I scold those every single time. Every single month that magazine came out, I'd go look at those stats and I would look for the new cars, and I would go back to my favorite old cars too and uh, see what the fast cars were. I would just look at it over and over again. Like you said, just completely obsessed. I mean, I know that our parents are an influence and what they're interested in, you know, you tend to be maybe interested in, but kids are easy prey for these designers of these supercars that wield this magic of passion that is designed to uh, convince a pessimistic, stale old businessman to buy their car over the other one. So it has to exude so much passion and leather and smell and all this incredible stuff to convince that salty old bastard to want to buy it. The kid and inside kids that just, salty old bastard. Yeah. <laughs> and kids are just these fresh palettes uh, with no tolerance to the, that kind of, uh, I don't know, drug. And you sit in there and you can't help but just be completely mesmerized to the point that affects your whole life. Like yeah. that one take of that drug as an eight-year-old affected your entire life and it's the same for me just sitting in that car going around one corner as a five-year-old yeah no you're you're exactly right and i think that's that's something that's that's really kind of cool and and again it's just you know we count ourselves lucky to be exposed at the right moment to the right thing and bam it just it just stuck and your imagination just takes off with it i think that's the part about maybe a lot of this, and even as we get into driving and we get better and better at it, we never lose that that visualization. You know, like we were mm-hmm. little kids imagining that we would get to drive a car like that one day, or what would it be like to drive a car like that one day? And then we're adults racing at a new track and we're doing laps in our head, trying to imagine, because we have to race on it tomorrow. <laughs> it's, it's a mm-hmm. skill. That was just a, I don't know, it was a luxury, it was escapism, it was just dreaming when we were children, uh, mm-hmm. but it gets honed into almost like a, a, a skill set after you do it your whole life. I think that's that's kind of that kind of cool. I want to go back to Bill because... Go back to Bill. You didn't get to say what you did with him besides staring evidently down toilets, which is sounds weird as I repeat it. <laughs> Bathtubs, bathtubs, but okay, it's fine. Bathtubs. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Bathtubs. Uh, yeah. You mean Bill as in like what he did, what his company and did? And what you did for him. Oh, well, I mean, I had a variety of jobs for yeah. Bill, but um, started out as uh, I, I was a lock guy in Boulder and I sold, I helped the sales guys sell cars essentially on this lot and I sold his son a car and um the uh bill invented amusement rides and so i did a variety of things from shipping in the the his office in longmont to trying out new amusement rides this is the part. yeah the uh guinea pig factor um was interesting in that particular job there was uh you know i did a lot of model building stuff and we tried some things rarely ourselves but it was uh, ultimately I I'd build these architectural models that would mimic the ride in hopes that that could help the 
uh, patent process could help the patent attorney understand the way to write the patent in order to come out with the right innovation that was, you know, profitable. And, uh, it, you know, making money out of an idea was a fascinating thing, but um, it was cool to be a part of that from the inside, sort of watch it from a spark to, ooh, that looks like fun to somebody actually making a bunch of money on it. It was pretty crazy. And so you you were the guinea pig at times, though. You got so at times a guinea uh, amusement ride guinea pig. So but, uh, explain the ride and what it was like to be the first person. What did you did you start with a sack of potatoes and then work your way to Tanner Faust? How did that work? Uh, well, see, Bill was in the industry before I got involved with him. He was with uh, he did bungee cord stuff, and um, so I did, didn't know him during those days. Although we did use some of the bungee cords we found in his house. Uh, on a ski boat and uh, contraption with an inner tube, which was a really, really bad idea. It's bad enough when I wrote it. It's an awesome Hold on to the dock as long as you can. I'm going to floor the boat. That's what it was. Oh, yeah, no, four guys would clamp you to the dock. And we'd hook it up to a jet ski, and jet ski would just take off until you just couldn't hold it any longer. And it was about, it was one out of three times you could actually hang on to the thing, but you'd wrap your legs around the front of it. We had, I mean, we literally reinforced the handles. We went, we were wearing gloves and, you know, ski gloves and everything. And, uh, yeah, the that first was time you achieved lower Earth orbit, you know, when, you yeah, know, yeah, it was like a past the jet ski at, at Mach 2.3. You did catch up to the jet ski pretty fast, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> that was a, but the, so those guys, um, it was this guy, Matt Eaton and Michael kitchen. They, Michael was Bill's son. Those guys had been working on the bungee stuff. And then when the Sky Coaster came along, that's when I kind of got involved. And that was essentially a big swing set that you got pulled back and you released a three ring harness from skydiving uh, tech. And then you just did a big pendulum. It's in every amusement park. It probably had its heyday, but it um, they still probably build them around the world and they make good money for parks and stuff. The first one of those was a crane, and I did swing on that crane. In those old, early days, you'd have, uh, I, I know that there was a, a, a screwdriver in the three-ring release and an F4-250, like, backing up with a cable hooked onto its bumper, and uh, that cable went up through the crane and down and pulled you back up to that crane and you were kind of hanging from a second one and you did a big pendulum. Um, the, you know, we, we had a lot of concepts that we abandoned because the models would like break and we'd have the simulated people on the models and they would break. There was one ride that I was working on that I did build the model. I built the model of it. It got patented. They built the actual ride down in Gulf Shores, Alabama. I think. Of course and, you do it there. And, no liability loss in cultures Alabama. <laughs> oh man, I was there helping, like getting hands on, you know, like seeing what went into build the rides and stuff. And I, and the ride just started coming apart. Oh my God. And yeah. Yeah. The crane that was pulling it down, it got misaligned and broke one of the things in this 20 ton piece of concrete. Anyway, it, I won't go into exactly how it broke and all that kind of stuff, probably because it's, illegal for me to even talk about it but it just started throwing metal everywhere and i was on this man lift going you know beep beep like moving <laughs> like you know one mile an hour eventually out of there 
Yeah, full throttle, baby. <laughs> no doubt of it. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca Cola, Pepsi, or 7 Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. But, um, yeah, there was a lot of education that went on in that. Did he have an engineer doing all the analysis of this thing or was it he did? Yeah. He did. And... um, you know, the thing about engineering is that sometimes uh, the tolerances that you need in the real world when you've got 19-year-olds operating stuff, uh, you know, you need to have some a, a bit more redundancy than you, you would ever imagine. Right. Um, but, that was, you know, that was a lesson learned. Uh, Bill went on to invent a, um, a skydiving wind tunnel. I built a, a, a model or modified this model for this, and it was a... Uh, a vertical wind tunnel that had the fans on top ended up selling that. I think, I, I don't know exactly how the business deal went down, but he sold it to somebody who bought, who started I fly. And so yeah. that's what those, those are, which they're now are country. Yeah. Yeah. They're popping up around the country, but that's all under that same patent of being sucked up into a uh, vertical wind tunnel instead of blown up by like a big DC three motor, like the one in Vegas is, yeah. is like that. Yeah. And that's, um, those are fun. Those are fun projects because it was, but it was about the business for me. That's what I found so fascinating mm. is how is this guy literally, um, he sees something swing and he's like, Oh man, you could make a ride out of that. I wonder how we could get, you know, and then figures out all the ways to, okay, then we supply the clothing. Then they have to buy our stuff for 15 years. And then we get 5% of their revenue for, you know, licensing the name. And, you know, he works out all the angles. And I loved that creative side of just, like I said, just magically creating a living out of, out of, of just an idea. It's not, it's, it's, a, it's yeah. Yeah. It is a it's like a superpower also. It is. And everybody has ideas, but that's like two percent of the work is having totally. the idea. I, I can yeah. I can I can so relate to that because the whole thing, the business side of it, I am absolutely hopeless at because I'm just too excited about the thing, you know, and I, I just and I, I didn't want to move on after that. I'm like, let someone else figure it out, you know, kind of kind of deal. But I just don't have the pay. I think the patience or the mind for it. I don't know. A combination of both but or probably i'm just well, simply not smart enough <laughs> well the patience is also a byproduct of the hunger you know so if you if you really wanted that jet so bad yeah that you know that was your number one focus that you wouldn't need to be patient it would be yeah. it didn't matter how much time it would take yeah you know yeah. i'm on the so you may not, thing, i think like what's you next? may not be motivated by that yeah yeah that's cool. So, okay. So, you know, I had this thought about it, you know, we're, we're going to get to talking about um, Hot Wheels and, and our, our little jump we did together. But when I, I just thought about you on the crane just now, and I, I, it is always, I've always really struggled with your unbelievable grace under pressure during that Hot Wheels stunt. And in a way, like for me, like that was all new. And um, and I, I just like I just kind of connected those two things together. Like you've actually done stuff similar with 
with that, you're getting hoisted up by a crane, just like we did in that damn truck. And, um, and you're just like, why am I doing this? I think, you know, if there was anything that contributed to um, that sort of mental, I, I think I know what you're talking about. And it, it, when I was in Boulder, I, I got way into rock climbing and and was doing that four or five days a week you know i took a, a hiatus from school did not get good grades in engineering um went skiing for a semester came back was a lot guy in in boulder at a mitsubishi dealership ended up getting my first racing ride out of that because the the manager slash owner of the dealership and i became driver co-driver for rally racing for five years and um scott crouch and yeah. so uh, but all those years i was climbing four or five days a week and um when i would go four days without climbing i'd get back on the rock again and even if my muscles were kind of fresh because they'd been rested and i was strong i'd notice that um i'd get even just talking about it right now i get a little bit slippery on my fingers um from being mentally unfit and there's this amazing, uh, um, I don't know what to call it, but it's like a mental fitness where you just think yourself out of being nervous about it because being nervous has a very physical reaction yes. that makes you slip off. And so you have to, you get this really ca direct cause and effect of your thought, what you allow yourself to think about. And it's the same with having asthma. Like I grew up with kind of this like mild form of asthma and playing soccer and stuff. You could think about a dry, dusty field with hay blowing in your face and just wheeze instantly, which I could probably do right now. Or I'd have a place that I would that go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now the dog can't stop thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's this, you, I think you start to have these, you have these little moments where you start to, um, formulate almost a brain muscle memory on on how to i'm not saying this is directly what is uh, the hot wheel story that you're talking about but i've noticed well, throughout that's my fascinating career. though in its own right because I, I i love that that direct causality of your fingertips getting wet causing you to fall off the rock and you're like you're so it's kind of i mean if you think about that and driving there's obviously absolute parallels to that where if you have a a momentary lapse in focus and concentration mid corner bad things will happen you know and uh and i think the so that that's really cool so you know i've known you for over 20 years well over i'd say we'd say easily 25 plus years now that was a super cool story right there about the rock climbing um, that i did not know i knew you did it but to hear you describe it in that way um again what i'm trying what i want to do when I say this, I want this to be two parts. It's like we eventually do start just talking about driving. But I think this stuff is just gold. Because, again, as I've been suggesting and you've been confirming with your stories, like it's, it's what makes us who we are. And, yeah. and then that ultimately affects who we can be in a way and sort of the capabilities that we have. Because there's a certain mindset that gets laid in place. And it's either you know, very efficient and productive, or it could be the opposite of that. And, um, and I, I think, I, you know, you, you talk about, you, you know, you talk talking about molecular biology, and then 
thinking about the engineering of, of amusement park rides that are that are not existing rides are things that you know bill's conjuring up and you're helping him sort of sort through the process of bringing something like that to market um, all of that it just speaks of a mindset in a way um, that you're developing you know as you're going and i think it's cool it's so cool in a way because it's like like you said you like the business side of it it's like that's that's that curiosity i guess is a really good word for all of this you know, when you're just sort of curious about your potential and not only your own potential, you, you see someone like Bill that's able to do conjure something out of nothing. And you're just like, I want that. Do I have that potential? <laughs> you know, you know, so I think all of those things are are kind of they're very elemental at first, but they they make you who you are today. If yeah, I, I, I mean, in hearing you talk about it, I've. I haven't thought about it like this necessarily, but you know, all those instincts that we have as people were necessary to get us through the first 50,000 years and maybe a hundred thousand years. But it's like, um, at this point, a lot of those instincts are not needed for us to survive. Right. And so we almost have this opportunity at this point in humanity where we can kind of accelerate ahead of ourselves and look back and study those um, conditions, that human condition. We can study those instincts and we can look at them, kind of reflect back at them and uh, how they are in unhuman situations like driving or skiing or whatever yeah. um, and see how they affect us positively or negatively, almost always negatively, as we've talked about many times. But um, it, we can actually reflect back at our human condition in, from a safe space because we're not relying on those instincts day in and day out just to eat and survive and live. It's, um, it's kind of a, it, it's a unique time. And, you know, maybe there's going to be a time when we get so separated from needing those yeah. instincts that we don't even recognize them anymore. But well, at we, this point, we just end up like, like Wally where they're floating around in the chairs and being excited about the Slurpees changing from red to blue. <laughs> <laughs> like that's our, woo! Fair enough. Fair it's enough. going to be a great day. But so like if we but if we accepted sort of the point, like we're, you know, I think they, they say they, there's so many things that you hear all the time. They say, like, we live today better than a king did 100 years ago. Like we have more access to medicine. We have more access to travel. We live more comfortably. We live in a more comfortable environment where we have air conditioning and heating and all those things that were like super rare, not that long ago. And we have so much of what we had to rely on from the hunter gatherer us, you know, of let's say 150 years ago and, and earlier uh, at least. And then, you know, to now where, you know, we just, we just go to grow, we hit the easy button on just about everything in our lives and, and uh, stare at our phones all day, you know? So that's like the not accepting the challenge that you're throwing out there and going, you know, we have opportunity here to take humanity to to kind of a next a next level with all this freedom that you know, cognitive bandwidth and freedom that we have because we're not worried about whether we're going to get eaten by a saber toothed tiger if we step out of our cave today you know kind of thing so I think that's all fast you know fascinating stuff and it is it is interesting but you can see how um, you know as, as humanity we love the easy button we damn love it you know. And we're all we're all guilty we're all guilty of it on on some respects. I think if oh, we, yeah. wouldn't it be cool to have the work ethic of someone trying to just stay alive two hundred years ago with right. the accessibility of what we have laid in front of us at our grasp today, 
um, we probably would be superhuman in some way, shape, or form. Oh, yeah. You know, because and now there's no organ more willing to take the path of least resistance in the brain. Oh yeah, and, and, yeah. And that's I mean, it utilizes its intellect just to to find the easy street for sure. Yeah, so it's it, it, it's an interesting topic for sure that we could probably spend a lot of time um, talking about. But and, and that's that's the neat thing about driving and and having a an obsession, as you said, or a passion for something, is you do have some place to put. You know, anytime you know you want to you want to raise the bar a little bit or pull your you know drag yourself screaming and kicking away from the easy button towards becoming better at something, at least you got something right. You got something that you love and and you're financially tied to because it's how you make your living. You know, so there's a lot of incentive there to to continue raising the bar and making it better. But I think it's again I go back and this is why I wanted to talk to you about all of this because I knew some of it and you're surprising me with more of it um but it's interesting to see what makes you who you are a little bit um and and you know even it's kind of cool to hear you say comments like I haven't really thought about this but and then you you say something that you know it's sort of it's even new to you you're like I hadn't really connected those dots so that's really cool so we're up to we're I'm gonna make you keep dragging things out of your out of your brain. <laughs> I don't want to drag out of your brain. So we're we're up to um, you met Scott Crouch. You're at the Mitsubishi dealer, yeah. and uh, and you got your first little taste of driving gig, and uh, and you and you and the other cool one that we didn't really expound upon, but you were working with a with a team at um, at Second Creek because you found yeah. the racetrack. So let's let, kind of pick it up from there and um, and let's, let's um, keep going. So there was a guy that came, I, I just literally drove up to the edge of the track, got out of my car, cars are going around it. They look kind of like vintage cars maybe. And <clears throat> I walked up to the tire wall and a guy came out of a, a kind of a bomb shelter looking warehouse and told me I couldn't stand there. And and I kind of asked him about racing and, and uh, are these people like with race teams? I'd never been really I, I, as an adult to the racetrack. And he, his name was Rich Dahl. And he had a team that was an arrive and drive and also a servicing team for spec Ford racers and formula Mazdas. Um, all gentlemen racers. Um, and he, uh, it was very seat of his pants and and he had enough going on that he was you know if you saw his office he looked like chevy chase first that was the first thing i noticed right off the bat i knew i'd like him because you know i was a big fletch fan and um he his office was just stacks of receipts and papers and all this kind of stuff and so i was trying to figure out how i might have some value to this guy and uh Bill had sold his company. Bill Kitchen had sold his company and was moving to Florida. That's why I went there to go check it out. And so I was 100% invested in Bill's company. So I think I got $8,300 as my part of it. And I was set for life. That was it. I was, I was done. I was done. So I literally a said- Formula to, One ride. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I told Rich, and when I saw his his office, I was like, look, I could get you like Excel spread. I knew how to do stuff on Excel. So I'll get you like sorted out on some accounting stuff. And this is before QuickBooks and that kind of stuff. And, and um, in return for seat time in the cars. 
And because I, I didn't need the money. I don't want your money. I just want some seat time in the car. So I worked eight months as a mechanic. And, you know, the Excel stuff took like three days. And then I went to work as a mechanic for eight months. And uh, on the spec Fords, I went to Sebring and, uh, you know, worked on the Formula Mazdas there and went to different races and tests. And, and it was very, very cool. I learned a lot about that side of, of the business of motorsport. Um, but out of that eight months, I got one practice and then uh, my license with, um, gosh, I can't remember that guy's name at Second Creek, but, and then I got one race. And then that was, that's, that's what I got. And that, uh, <clears throat> that was in a spec Ford. I got third in the race and that I was super nervous about that race. Cause at that point I had no <clears throat> proven skills, no experience, um, just an obsession. And I knew that I could completely suck. And <clears throat> I'd, I'd already that's what taught... happens when you take a risk, right? It could always go completely wrong. And, I, and I'd already kind of resigned to the fact that the real test was did was I getting was I getting better? Could I, did I have the propensity to learn it, or was I so set in my little handbraking my Honda Civic, you know, around corner ways uh, in Northern Virginia, just like you? Sorry, but yeah. yes. And uh, was I so set in that muscle memory that I couldn't learn anything else? So that's who what I was teaching you. Who was, who was, was someone teaching you or were you teaching yourself? No, it's just rich. Just rich was the team owner. And, um, and then the school that I went to, I, you know, you had to go to school to get your SCCA license. It was what pretty was the school you went to. <laughs> uh, it was not Jim Christian. It was another Colorado. Okay. Like school SCCA guy, okay. Okay. but he's just a super old dude that um you know showed you a line talked about yeah. heel and toe and and did all the basics and um that uh i ended up uh bullshitting my way from there a bit um the that first race this is before gopro cameras and stuff like that so nobody really could collect video or see themselves from the outside you know, right. and so I would run a service where I would follow people during practice sessions and give them a couple tips. And I charged $120 to do that. And um, I only went to people that like on previous races that I had qualified better than. And that would and I did, and I was really cognizant not to come arrogant, like come off arrogant or anything like that. Just, you know, we're all here to learn. It's, it's just, you never get somebody's perspective from the outside. You're racing against them. They see the mistakes you've made. They just take advantage of them. They don't walk up to you and say, Hey, by the way, you could track out a little further on the third turn and you'd be way better off, you know? So I just did that for people and people would get faster it really turned quickly into all I had to say was brake later, accelerate earlier. And that pretty much summed up everything, but it was a, um, I did probably four people per race and that covered tires and, and, um, and some of the racing. But uh, so I did spec Fords for a year. I did it with Jim Christian racing. He was a guy who gave a scholarship um, for $3,500. You got 10 races, not including tires. 
And so then I would pay for tires with that coaching service is how it worked out. And so this was before um, the uh, Scott Crouch and the Mitsubishi dealer or the same time? That's before, this is before that. And yeah, Scott Crouch came just after that. Do you remember me coming out and running that one of those Fords with you? I remember, I I do remember that. I do remember that. And it was, I I cannot remember why, how that came about, but you invited me out to drive one of those Fords and I came out and drove it. That's right. It was, I probably was the Jim Christian Ford, probably was Jim Christian. Yeah. Because I was going there, I think, boy, and I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I'm trying to remember if I was going there with, no, no, this was way before the Evo. So that was the first time I'd ever been to that track, was literally that day, was when I came out and broke. You paid $350, and I think I paid the same amount. No, we split it. You did. I think we did. I think we split it, and we did a a full test day in one of those cars. We had the track to ourselves, right? It wasn't like a... uh, Man, I'm pretty sure... We should have got our facts together before we got went on a podcast. <laughs> I don't. I do not remember paying money for that. Uh, I, I remember. Maybe, maybe I spon- like so that. that makes me one of your first sponsors. Then it does make That's you one of my first sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was okay. So to put the chronology, I think it, I worked at, as a mechanic. One of the drivers in the Formula Mazda came on board, Kevin Schrantz. And he had a logo on the car that was the Bridgestone Winter Driving School. Uh-huh. And then I asked him about that. And he introduced me to Jerry Pearl and Mark Cox up at the Winter okay. Driving School up here in Steamboat. Yeah. And, and then I got a job there in the winters, met Morgan. Morgan and Rex were buddies. And then I went and did the first BMW program where I met yeah. you. And then I bet it was later that summer or the next summer that we did yeah, that it, it must have been i just remember you like you inviting me out and i came out and, and drove just for i only did like a few laps in the car but you were going to be there i was like oh cool i'll come yeah 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 i i do remember the first ride and drive we did pretty well <laughs> my my memory's a little grayer than yours since, <laughs> yeah since you the don't re- drink the reason the reason the yeah. memory uh, and, and it doesn't sound like it, by the way, judging by you, you had better recall of us at, at Second Creek. But but yeah, I'm designated driver for life because I've, I've never had a taste for drinking. So I never drank. And and so everyone, everyone, whether they like me or not, loves having me around. Yeah, you know they're going to get to get back because good old Paul yeah. will wheel the minivan and uh, and get the thing back to the hotel and, and the world will be OK the next morning besides the hangover. But uh, yeah. yeah, but we, man, we had a good time. So, so you did, let's, 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 before we dive off into that world, because uh, <laughs> <laughs> this conversation will quickly devolve into debaucherous uh, parties and things like that, that were going on. But, but um, you were, so you were kind of like at that point, because you started doing winter driving school stuff and you were doing stuff with Scott Crouch, you wanted to be a rally driver. Yeah, I well, I learned from Rich Dahl and these Formula Mazda guys that <clears throat> what it cost, and that was to race club Formula Mazda. Right. I mean, like everyone, I saw Indy cars, I saw Formula One cars, I played Atari 
you know, Grand Prix. That's what I saw as racing. And when I learned that you could spend a million dollars in a summer and and still no and win the championship and that didn't really help you raise money even for the next year. Yeah. Um, I was like, this is not the game that I'm, you know, going to be capable of, of going into, but rally was kind of the, the sport less, it was the path less traveled, I guess. And, and, and working at the ice driving school, I really got a taste for sliding around and rally driving and efficiency while sliding and that like kind that. of I like that. our control. Yeah, yeah and, so and by the way, that's what I heard about you when, before I knew who you were. Um, like when I when you were being described to me, and I'm trying to remember if it was like Jerry or Mark or maybe Morgan, but they're like, we got this kid, Tanner, and I'm like, that's a weird name. Okay, keep going. And they go, yeah. and they're like he, they're like he is really good. And I think Kevin was telling me as well. Though Kevin was telling me in a way because Kevin was racing at the time, he was not happy about this super quick kid tanner like the other guys the, the older guys were like you know they were they were completely like they love talking about but they were saying how just sort of exceptional you were and i i remember the first thing the first thing they were saying like he'll just go and do these forward 360s down the straightaway at the ice track you know and everyone else is just kind of going what the heck and and then I, the other thing i remember about the, the winter driving school when i was there as a kind of a guest instructor occasionally i came out yeah. um but you do the morning race, which was like the best, the best thing about the winter driving school was all the instructors every yeah. morning did a race. And, uh, and oh, yeah. that that's what that's my, I use my Excel spreadsheet skills at that point, right? We put, we had little, you know, every, every corner, we'd have a, a couple different waypoints so that we could graph each driver and see where the different instructors were beating other instructors. And I'd spend, yeah, I'd spend half my time doing that it seemed like but yeah that was super fun the morning races were awesome morgan was a big like leader of those races and yeah. he was always really fast yeah he, he was. And, yeah he's really fast and it was kind of like one of those things where if you did something kind of special you could beat morgan but if you ever made a mistake no chance yeah. and he was a great like litmus test of yeah. of you know how things were going that day that was so much fun. I mean, ripping around on the ice track, you'd make your own cloud over over steamboat. That's when the track was right in the middle of town. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was it was definitely good times there. I also had gotten a job at Pikes Peak International Raceway um, at some point in that time frame as a sales guy uh, for the track, trying to maybe figure out how to raise money to do all this stuff. You're really and, taking advantage of that molecular biology degree that you had. Yeah. Yeah. My family was so proud. They were, <laughs> yeah. So how are those MCAT studies going? Good. Yeah. <laughs> M what's yeah. But, <laughs> it was, um, yeah. So that, that I learned a lot at Pikes Peak on, um, again, why people spend money. Uh, that 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 expanded my relationship with Kevin. I helped him find sponsorship, basically, um, in return for uh, uh, a commission. And um, it was, you know, he had something that was sellable because he raced for real time racing in World Challenge, and it was on TV. And um, I didn't really have anything of value that I could leverage against to to raise money. 
Um, my first sponsor was Optima Batteries. They gave me $300 to uh, go race the spec Ford. The guy who gave me that money was a guy named Cam Douglas, who was kind of a marketing guy in the company at the time. And now he runs the whole show over there um, for marketing at Optima. And he's still... Exactly. Yeah. 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 How cool is that? Yeah. He went, I mean, we went away and then came back again, but it's very cool. And it's, it's the, the biggest lesson that I learned really is that you can't burn any bridges because these people, even if they're just a starting out marketing, um, you know, bottom of the rung kind of person, they're going to be running the show and and writing the checks in not too many years if you really want to have a career for a while. So you need to to be, you know, um, need to be real with everybody and make the right call with everybody and be respectful of everybody because it, that can only, that's the only way to have a long career for sure in motorsport. I mean, that, that speaks volumes about, about you that as a, as a person, quite frankly, because we know so many hot-headed people in this business that uh, especially who let their kind of their egos go unchecked, um, and and I was talking about this last week with Steve, but I think one of the one of the true um, gifts that someone can have in a situation like this, where they're going to be they're going to keep plugging away and get very good at something, is maintaining humility through all of that, recognizing that at any day it could go away, and you've got to treat those relationships. I mean, that that's amazing that you that was your first sponsor. And we're talking about decades ago. Now they're my title sponsor. And they're yeah. and they're still. I mean, yeah. that's, that's that's amazing. So I mean, if there ever were a lesson for anyone to take away that wanted to get a start in motorsports, uh, know how to get yourself into a team, whether it's sweeping a floor or doing an Excel spreadsheet, right? Like whatever it takes, and develop relationships with people, meaningful relationships with people. And if you if you're good at that and I think you probably already get an idea of Tanner's mindset here where he's so you're so inquisitive, you know, and you've always had that curiosity about the about like I could care less about the business side when I was younger. Literally, I was like the stereotypical put me in a car. I'm fast idiot. Um, and <laughs> I mean, seriously, I mean, I was I like one like was was. <laughs> was. <laughs> yeah. Thanks Great. for letting me have that. And um, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll Venmo you later. Um, but <laughs> that's, that's the thing is that, that, I mean, and that's something I've known about you and I've always known about you. And, and I'll, I'll say this, like, and people have said this all the time because you and I, again, we've had such a long relationship now that's been so, uh, so valued for me and it's so, been so much fun. And um, and you get all the naysayers that you you meet along the way, like oh that Tanner, you know, or whatever, and and you know just the resentful guys with the egos. And and I've always said, you know what? There are plenty of guys in motorsports that don't belong where they're at, or you know, or have accolades they don't really deserve because they dad paid for it, or they you know they were just right place, right time. And I'm like, Tanner Faust is not that guy. I'm like, I've I've watched you, I've known you. And and the cool thing about you to me is that you're just as strong out of the car as you are in the car as a person, um, and that's always been the best part about hanging out with you. Is is and it, but it's cool like chatting with you now and kind of hearing the genesis of it all is is cool. 
because we get to see yeah, we've never like, sat we've never sat down like this no we never have i've heard little right. bits and pieces but we've never like let's kind of really talk about it because obviously the podcast is is a reason to do that we've never really had a reason right. um and i and i think i know you really well but it's so cool to hear this because i realize again a lot of the why behind the who in in, in that in that context you know and um i feel like i hear the podcast but I can hear your story because I, you know, I hear a lot of tidbits and the, yeah. we know the same road, Virginia. We've jumped the same little three little pigs on Buell's, Pula. It's so that, funny. But, it's so yeah. funny. I, it is. It is weird. Like when I was saying, we have a lot in common. Like you know, I was born in England. I'm I'm older than Tanner, so a lot of this, like I was sort of ten years ahead of him on all of this stuff, um, or so. But but like what we did and how we did it and when we did it is like strangely similar. Um, and, and I don't know if that's why we get along so well or or we see the world kind of the same way. But it's weird. It was, it was very similar. Just it was in black and white. Yeah. Yeah. I had wooden spokes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, it's it's uh, it's almost uncanny in a way. But it's kind of it's kind of cool because then, you know, because I thought it, it all it already kind of bit me in the butt because I already said, oh, you must have been thinking about driving when you were skiing and BMXing and awkward pause and you go, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that, I mean, to me, like that's, that's, that's gold right there because then it gave us an opportunity to like dig into how you ended up where you did. And it, it isn't exactly my story. And of course it wouldn't be, but, uh, but it's, it's, I think that this stuff is so interesting and so fascinating. So the first ride and drive that I did from my side, all right, so you'd heard, you know, Morgan. Now, to be fair, Morgan kind of like got me the gig, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he was he was trying to talk me up probably to make sure that, you know, because you know, at that time, that was, that was not easy to do, to go get a day rate, to go sit right seat and to drive and to go travel around, stay in nice hotels. Yeah. That was kind of a, there were a lot of pile of, of those programs. There are a lot of people trying to get into that program. This BMW one was pretty big. I remember it was like 36 driver instructor people. LA was 17 days. That yeah. first oh city is the longest. It was the longest one I'd ever done. Uh, I remember the hotel we stayed in because I crashed the rental car uh, in, in there. Uh, I mean, I scratched the rental car, but if you remember, there was like uh, Bob... He would these stories would come out about how the the I I read it I mean, and I read it, it online I was like oh yeah Tanner Faust crashes a rental car causes a fire burns sixty cars down and I'm like what <laughs> you know and you know yeah I'm so nervous about getting fired there's all these stories of course oh this one guy hit a cone and they sent him home you know so you don't hit a cone in the parking lot you were the czar of all that stuff you know doing the talk in the tents and then sitting in your minivan just looking over all these instructor peons doing their laps like okay got a cone there and rex would collect money for like a beer fund for That's every right. cone you hit. yeah yeah that was five dollars for the for the green cones and a dollar for the, the orange cones it was like a lot of pressure to come into this yeah. the first time i'd ever been paid to do any of that stuff you know and the winter driving school is great it, it it's comfort food for me because it, it's an extreme environment these people coming into it you have such a big advantage as an instructor over the students that it's real easy to talk and coach that stuff because you're on the ice every day and they just come in 
from New Jersey and it's their first time there. But this stuff in the parking lot, it's with 36 other people that have been doing this for a living and you're kind of the punk showing up. So I was sure yeah. I was getting a plane ticket home. Yeah. And uh, you came up to me, the, you know, it's always bad when the minivan showed up to your rental car while you're hanging out waiting for the next session. You rolled <laughs> minivan up and you're like, hey, that last uh, session there, I'm like, oh, no. Like, yeah, you came around there, you had that, and those were the X5, so they would pick, pick a tire up every once in a while. You're like, yeah, oh, it's gorgeous. The tire's in the air, tire's set down, brake lights came on, brake lights go off, the next tire comes in the air. It was really, really nice. And I was like, oh, sweet. I've got a compliment, and, and I got invited to the, the, the sushi dinner. There was like this, you know, rumor of a sushi dinner that Here would go, go on. Yeah, that was like a sponsored associate sponsored dinner from skip barber and uh all you know sure okay all the the you know they're, they're only select instructors that got to go to this dinner and uh it was tokyo dells i'm sure you remember the night because you were sober as a judge um but i do remember dancing a lot on tables and chairs and yeah. uh playing spin the bottle in the girls bathroom with a large bottle of Sapporo, which broke and somebody got their foot cut. Remember we got like escorted out. Yeah. I moral of I the story is <laughs> you drove everyone home. I didn't make it to call time at the, in the hotel lobby the next morning. And I woke up. I don't even remember. I have like traumatic, traumatic amnesia from the actual morning. I don't remember waking up <laughs> or anything. I just remember strolling out and probably shirt half tucked and getting into arbitrary rental car and you're driving it. And, uh, and I'm like, I'm sure I'm going home. Like this was probably day four out of 17. I don't know. Yeah. I'm sure that's the end of it. I completely screwed the pooch. So I tried to make some small talk with you and I was like, yeah, that was <clears throat> quite a time last night. Huh? Boy, I can't believe you're a, you can even drive right now. And you're like, I've never had a drop of alcohol in my life. I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I'm dead. so fired. <laughs> yeah, so fired. And you didn't fire me then. So I've been paying you back ever since, anyway. Possibly. You still, it's still just this massive debt that is owed me. I just want to be clear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because of, I, I'm sure you understand this. You have a spreadsheet for this because of the principle of compound interest. Yes, that's right. No, I get it. And inflation on top of that, I mean, this is crazy. <laughs> it'll never go but, away. no it's never gonna go away so but yeah I'll that's tell you, those programs i'll tell you and and you know you know this but so because morgan and rex spoke so highly of you and because of those laps in the x5 you were never gonna go home ever yeah you know i mean because because well, i didn't that know all, that that was always the thing of course i would never let you know that but but that was all always the thing with me is is not you know like even you could even hit a cone if the car was beautifully poised and balanced <laughs> yeah. when it did it that's all that, right. i just cared about the art of driving that's all i ever cared about and all yeah. i wanted was was instructors on that program that cared too and it's like you and i having a discussion about vortices is no damn different it's just an appreciation yeah. for art um and and driving certainly can reach that that level and that's when it's it becomes magic and and there's so few people that ever get a car to that level out of all the people that we've ever known 
And as soon as I saw that in the X5, I'm like, that kid's coming out to dinner. And I don't care what he does. He ain't getting fired. <laughs> well, I wish you would have told me that. I probably would have had another. Well, round. now I can tell you. See, now I can tell you. <laughs> this doesn't wipe the debt, by the way, just to be clear. Yeah, um, no did. No did. Yeah, okay, good. So, so that, yeah, I, I think, but, but that's so, it, it's so cool, again, to hear you going up through the ranks and again, sort of the, the things that, and all of that, like, you know, being worried about hitting a cone, it, it, it keeps you on point. It makes you drive better, right? And it, it, you're, you're now put in a situation where, you know, and we did our own little races whenever we got a chance, right? When we were doing setup or whatever it happened to be, um, we were always trying to race each other here and there. We do the snow challenges and the Crown Victorious from the Meadowlands parking lot. You remember driving into the city in the snow in the Crown Vicks, like to go to Tamoy? Um, just yes. some of the best drives ever is to go into Manhattan <laughs> in when it's snowing and there's 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 no one on the roads, like because everyone on the East Coast is paranoid of driving in the snow, you know, as far as the general population. So we used to go from the Meadowlands into the city in these rear-wheel drive Crown Vicks that it turns out when you push down on the foot parking brake on a Crown Vic or on a Cadillac, it doesn't lock. <laughs> so you just have a, a fly-off. <laughs> Parking brake whenever you want to use it. Best rental car ever. Best rental cars ever. Crown Vicks and Grand Marquis and uh, Town Cars did the same thing. And uh, we'd go in there just tan tandem drifting in the snow with these, with these rental cars and go in and have some of the best sushi in the world, literally, in an abandoned Manhattan. And then it's drive back. And then drive back. Those were, those were really good memories. And Tamoy just closed down. I know. Moment of silence for one of the best sushi spots in the world. Um, King King was the guy. Remember, King, King was, was the guy. He was the chef. And I I was in there maybe three years ago. Was the last oh. time I was there, and I went up and I didn't dare put my hand out to shake his hand, but I did just tell him thank you because I I just didn't know when I'd see him again, and it had been a long time since I'd been there. And he's like, oh, you know, very respectful, of course. He probably was thinking, now we can close. <laughs> It's yeah, so it's, it's your fault. Oh. Honestly, because I went there last week and I went and my daughter came out and it was this great trip and I was going to get to take her to Tamoy. That was one of the things. Oh, I, like we can do whatever we want, but on Tuesday we're going to Tamoy. You're going to love it. You take bites out of Toro like an apple. It's going to be incredible. I just started rolling a little. Yeah, I know. I cracked in it. And she was like, yeah, but is there, you know, do they have cooked chicken? This is my daughter. but um. Yeah, but it was closed anyway. So yeah, it's an end of an era for sure. But yeah, that I mean, you can't help but learn stuff with a group like that. There were a yeah. lot of interesting people that came through those ride and drives. We all sort of had other, most of us had other things going on. At that time, I was also coaching in Formula Mazdas and trying to, it was like an arrive and drive series, trying to make rules. Rotary for rockets. Rotary Rockets, good, good recall. You came you remember out. Remember me coming out, out with you to Putnam Park? Yep. Nicholas Ronde came out. I remember one time, once. Um, and the yeah, <laughs> but the, future podcast, I'll have Nicholas. He's on he's on the short list. I need to have him out. And David Jones. Um, but yeah, that was uh yeah, you came out to Putnam Park. It was a cool track, actually. Remember what you did to me in the I believe it was a Crown Vic rental car. So you remember oh, it like crazy and we were doing yeah, hot laps. Huddle. We were having fun, but yeah. there was a big puddle in town. 
that yeah. you don't need to drive through. So we did that. I had a really bad migraine. I get migraine headaches for those of you. That yes. Don't. So I get migraines. I had a really bad migraine. So I was laying down in the back of the Crown Vic trying to sleep. And Tanner Faust, being Tanner Faust, which is like the most mischievous person that you've ever met when behind the wheel of a car, decided to launch it off a railroad track with me sleeping in the back. And I remember how hard I slammed into the roof of the Crown yeah. Vic. I remember seeing you in the mirror. <laughs> I saw you in the mirror floating. Yeah. Yeah. Howling. Howling. Yeah. I have a migraine. <laughs> I have a migraine headache. And Tanner's like, this is going to be funny. <laughs> remember when you did Burn Bridges? And 20 years later, we're still laughing about it. Still so, I mean, it was... and yeah, this is why. <laughs> yeah. You know, that was, I think, Roger, the guy who owned the series, was in the car, too. Yeah, and, I think he was uh, in the front seat, and I was in the back, and Roger probably egg, egged you on, and you did it, not realizing, maybe, maybe did, I'm hoping, did. didn't realize I was laying down with no seatbelt on in the back seat. Gosh, I do remember you floating up in the air and hitting the roof. Yeah, good times. See, and we're still loving it years yes. later. But, yes. uh, so, yeah, so then... A, um, Ride, are you are you rallying at all during this or are you just co-driving with scott it was kind of, i want to say it was a couple i was i was starting to co-drive stuff with scott and it wasn't until a few years of doing winter driving school and ride and drives in the summer you know winter summer back and forth that a samuel hubinet somebody that that actually through the bmw program you and rex had brought over from sweden he was i think a participant yes, came as was. a participant and um you guys were like okay this guy can drive um and started actually flying him out to do events as an instructor uh, we taught him english the hard way yeah i think it's i think his first word boobs and it went Second word, third that, word, fourth word yeah <laughs> went downhill from there but <laughs> it was uh and now, of course, you know, he's probably one of the busiest uh, stunt drivers in the commercial world living in L.A. Um, and uh, has, you know, been a friend of ours and, and stuff ever since then. But um, it was after doing that for a while that Samuel went to a drift event uh, when D1 came uh, to L.A. The Japanese guys all came out to L.A. Samuel went out there and entered with a guy, Rich Rutherford and Nick Kuhnwalter. In a rented 350Z. In a rented 350Z and qualified. That's yes. how kind of low Great level story. it was back. Yeah. yeah. And and then, um, and I got stuck. He abandoned me while I was doing your job of talking in the tent at that point. He abandoned me there. So um, I went to the next Formula Drift event. And so from then on, I was doing rally and drift um, together simultaneously. Those were some, those were some, some amazing times because the thing the thing that struck me about that that was really cool was remember like the bmw stuff turned into simon kirkby who's the guy that hired me way back in like 92 and was our boss through all that and of course chip panko um yep but simon eventually i was like pestering him the whole time like i want to do a real school like, I want to take these BMWs. And then we had Alex Schmook, who was our BMW client. And Alex loved driving. And so we were always coaching Alex. And he was yep. in the cars. Every time the customers weren't in the cars, Alex showed up early. 
you know, and we were coaching him and I was always in his ear going, and I was super frustrated with Skip Barber and the way they were teaching schools with the eight minutes on the skid pad thing. And I was already convinced that car control was the key to driving success and this, that, and the other thing. And so through, through that, I finally got the green light and I, I'm trying to remember the year, but it was the year of the, the, uh, what, what's the series? The M5. The V8 39 M5. Yes. And we did the car control clinics. And so we did a year of that. The courses were a huge success. Remember those runway courses we set up that were like. We did 90 mile. miles an hour. Yeah. 90 yeah. miles an like, hour. Yeah. A mile and, and a half. Long day out, you'd start the day out. I remember with two hours on the skid pad. A few hours. For some reason, Nicholas's students always puked in the slalom. <laughs> <laughs> the demos <laughs> on the demo labs. Would, I don't think they could understand what he was saying while he was hurling them through the slum, you know, and he, he had about a 20, 25% puke ratio, but uh, it was, uh, yeah, those were epic. And they, we, we go got to do so much time. sliding. Yeah. We got to do so much drifting. And remember we used to do tandem drift at the end and it was yes. before the D one thing. That's the thing that was critical. It was because that was Samuel was over there and it was all sort of like we were doing it just because we thought it was the right thing to do. And we knew about drifting so, in Japan. Yeah. And we were teaching car control and we just, you know, we were in love with those E39 M5s. They were just flipping brilliant cars to do they're, that. They're awesome. And I just oh, I have yeah. so many. Some of the first photos that I have, like on a phone that could take a photo of those M5 sliding around, uh, smoking tires. It was just like the first time you're just like, you know, the way that you make something look fast and powerful is if it has tire smoke coming off of it. That's yeah. just the way you do it. And there's just no second question on that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those those programs were awesome. Nobody got hurt amazingly with the speeds that we were going on. Those yeah. we were in the car the whole time which which was one thing but um but yeah that was great practice setting up the tracks remember the tracks had to almost flow drifting absolutely in order to be acceptable and and we would go through tires on great rear wheel drive cars with free tires and that was you know samuel went on to be the first champion of formula d from all of that practice absolutely and it's like yeah, and, and then, then you uh, went on to be a two-time champion, you know, and yeah, from that stuff, I think. And, and then, of course, Rich was there for some of that, and he went out to was drifting Kuhnwalder. We had so many guys that went through that, and they were, they were very select instructors that got to do it, um, and all of them are still notable in motorsports. You know, it was just like one of those sort of lightning in a ball of moments where we had the right car, the right program at just the right time. And, um, and a lot of, a lot of cool stuff came out of that, which I thought was amazing. And Hey, at the same time, let's see, well, let's see, when would that have been that we were doing that? It was like the early two thousands, right? Yeah, and that was going on. It was like probably like 2003 or four when those cars were out, when we were doing those programs. Uh, yeah. It would have been 2003, four, because then drifting got going three and four. Yeah. Because I was coming out to you and we were doing the perfect day in our talons at Steamboat. Yes. And that's, that's right. right. So I still work there. Yep. 
So we were, so, so I live in Boulder, Tanner lived in Steamboat, strangely enough, he does again, he's this where he's right now, he's in Steamboat, uh, and, and literally like 20 some years in between, right? And um, so I would drive out from Boulder and we would do this thing called the perfect day. And I still tell the perfect day story when people say they've had a good day. I'm like, nope, you just, you've had a good day. You haven't had a perfect day. <laughs> yeah, it could have been a great day. day. But it wasn't perfect. Explain the perfect day to you. Exactly. So let's 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 explain the perfect day because I think it's it, it was uh, pretty well thought out. So we would we'd start out with uh, early morning laps on the track. Yes. So oh no, we'd go to we'd go to the shack. We go to the shack and get bre breakfast, um, which is kind of like a Moe's diner. It's a classic diner in, in Steamboat. On the way to the track, start out laps on the track. Um, this is when the track is like sandpaper it's not ice it's got this rhyme that sticks to the ice overnight so it's got this consistent grip and it kicks up this fine dust that just you can't see but you can see the sparkles in the air on these bluebird steamboat days just like today and it's um those early morning laps are sweet and of course the stopwatch would come out there'd be a lap time set and there'd be a little bit of a race there and any structures that wanted to show up would then we'd go to the mountain, boot up, and, you know, the office was right on the side of the mountain, you remember? So you just boot up and ski right out of the office, right down to the gondola or to the lift, and, and we'd go ski. We'd ski till we get to a little bit after lunchtime, go to Slopeside Grill. Or Slopeside Grill. Or Tugboat. Yeah. Yep. Slopeside Grill, you'd get a burger. If you went to Tugboat, you'd get this, like, chicken sandwich with pineapple on it. Oh, my gosh, so good. And uh, then head back out to the track and catch the afternoon laps and that was while one bitter instructor was still working like picking up cones <laughs> <laughs> hooking up the, the like uh the steel to drag you know to degrade the track and everything and you're over there just like still high off of your cheeseburger and your runs this morning so and true. <laughs> crushing okay. this track just wringing out the last life the track had in it for the day we're doing rim shots around the outside because that's the only place the grip was left. You know? Totally. And you would go in, you'd show up to the parking lot, the instructor working and be like, oh, God. And you'd be like, oh, we'll help you pick up cones. No problem. <laughs> Rev limiter all the way down the straightaway. <laughs> it was pretty abusive. But then uh, after that, we go to oh, the hot springs. No, we go sushi and then sushi. Go to, oh, yeah. Go get some sushi. And there's actually good sushi in Steamboat, surprisingly, for being a mountain town. Um, and then up to the hot springs where you'd have, I mean, you could jump in this ice river that was next to it. And it's like, you know, the hot spring where it's got the rock floor. It's real natural. It's an all natural hot spring. Just, just epic. And it was nude after six o'clock or clothing optional, I'll say, after six o'clock which didn't mean anything because it was so dark no flashlights were allowed or anything like that but occasionally a flash would go off and then you'd blink and you'd see like you know 30 pairs of boobs that was just <laughs> the perfect day yeah that was the perfect a perfect day. done for the perfect yeah. day <laughs> yeah. exactly it was amazing <laughs> yeah we're gonna have to recreate that now that we live here again i think we're gonna have to do that I think we can do yes. that. So yeah, we'll have to we'll have to try and uh, try and um, maybe even figure out something else we could inject in there that make it even better. But that was pretty ideal. And well, so that was razors. all going on. And, you, and what's that? You thought of razors. something? 
I think. Yeah. Razors. Yes. Yes. That's with fair. razors. Because here at the house, we're thinking about building a little ice track for studded tires. razors. Probably not. <laughs> Don't that kind of maintenance. They dig too deep, you know. Just want to, but but they're they're they'd be grippy enough with little knobbies on there. I think. All right. Uh, it sounds yeah. good. Sign me up. Thanks for watching part one of my interview with Tanner Faust on the Optimum Drive podcast presented by TFL. Tanner's going to come back and get to finish his story. And then we're going to do a third podcast after uh, this one's all over where we're actually going to talk about specifically driving and Optimum Drive and sort of his methods and techniques. So uh, we're going to have fun with this. He's a great driver and a great resource and also very much a guy that thinks about everything he does in exquisite detail. So he's a fun guy to interview on a podcast because he really knows what he's talking about and can explain things really well. So love having him here. Uh, Make sure you stick around for all the Tanner Faust podcast here on Optimum Drive presented by TFL. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.